Hi. This week on Papa PhD, I'm bringing you my conversation with Parag Mahanti. We recorded this in November during Parag's Thanksgiving break. Since then, India has been severely hit by the second wave of the COVID pandemic, and many lives have been lost. Parag wanted this episode to be dedicated especially to the late Dr. Ashim Chakravarti. If you want to support the fight against COVID in India, please contact Parag at Parag Mahanti on Twitter. I'd also like to note that Parag gave this interview on Thanksgiving while he was with his close ones. So you might hear some background noise throughout. But please bear with us, because the nuggets he shared are absolutely worth it. For example, we talked about Parag's experience interviewing for jobs, early after his PhD, but also in his most recent career moves. The same guy had actually told me that like any job, if you don't like the interview process, chances are you won't like the job. And this is something that I, I continue to kind of feel through all of the career progressions that I've made, that like if you don't really enjoy the process and the people you're meeting, then you're not going to like the people that you're going to work with. Mm-hmm. Because they represent the culture, they represent the culture of whoever of you... Of the industry and of the company. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Specifically. Oh yeah, okay. Um can we still talk about how you even though not going into the day-to-day etc etc how the process of of find you know deciding okay now i'm looking for a job and then interview you know the, the whole process of how you got to the position is that okay yeah okay perfect great great no of course there the, the nda yeah <laughs> okay no no worries sounds good okay then <clears throat> i will i will start and then we'll talk we'll go from there Welcome to this week's episode of Papa PhD. Today I have with me Parag Mahanti. Parag received his PhD in chemistry and chemical biology in 2013 from Cornell University, where his research was focused on nuclear hormone receptors, steroid signaling, and metabolomics. Since then, he has moved careers thrice, first to consulting, then to finance, and currently in pharma. Outside of life sciences and biopharma strategy, Parag's passions include music, both playing and listening, biotech startups, and understanding the evolution of scientific reasoning and leadership skills. Parag takes an active interest in career progression of PhD students and has created a fast-growing LinkedIn group that currently has more than 5,000 members. Parag also serves as mentor for the the Entrepreneurship Lab, eLab NYC, originally launched by the New York City Economic Development Corporation, to provide mentorship to biotech, health tech startups in the New York area. I'm super happy, Parag, to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. So, Parag, um, uh, we can talk about the music at a, at a certain point, but uh, I, I, I'm going to ask you first, uh, for the listeners who, uh, who are now tuning in, to uh, maybe talk a little bit about yourself uh you know you have come from india to to study in the states that's a whole uh, adventure in and of itself uh yeah t- tell your story a little bit in a couple of minutes so people get to know a little bit more of uh of you of who you are and of uh and, and this will pre- you know this will prepare our conversation for after which is how you got to the position you're in today in terms of a job um absolutely the the story, I think, would start uh, when I was growing up in Calcutta, India, um, in, a, in a family that was very much interested in having a scientific career. 
my dad mm. pursued science uh, couldn't complete his own phd because of financial reasons um my uncle had a phd my elder brother had started a chemistry undergraduate course and then moved to engineering so it was a very stem focused mm -hmm. culture and family and so it was almost like all right you're going to study chemistry and that was it <laughs> <laughs> i had i had some faint um i had some faint uh, kind of uh, i wanted to say that i wanted to study literature but it didn't really work <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and so i studied chemistry for three years in India and our bachelor's courses are three years mm -hmm. and that's when I started learning about oh you could actually go to the US to do a PhD mm -hmm. and I was like okay how do you do that people started telling me about GRE then I realized one year for masters is required so I enrolled myself in a master's program mm -hmm. and throughout this time I was like all right chemistry bachelor's master's I'm going to do a PhD and become a professor right so that dream continues. Haven't we all had that dream? <laughs> so I came here because that was the goal, right? Like that was like, and, and once again, you, if I contextualize it, uh, the culture that I grew up in pretty much um, really looked up to academics, right? And still does. <laughs> so if you are a professor, uh, irrespective of, you know, your financial positions or whatever, you are revered right? You're respected. And so, yeah. and respect is pretty much what people think uh, does everything in the world, which it doesn't, but mm -hmm. like, whatever. Right? <laughs> Indian culture is very different than once I came here and, and I enrolled into a PhD program. I was like, oh, this is awesome. This is super cool, smart thinking stuff. And I can thrive in this. And I started doing mm -hmm. that for first year and second year. And then by third year, I was like, no way. Like, I like the smart thinking part of it. I like the science. But I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And mm. I think main reason was I love the science. In fact, I've stayed very close to the science most of my career. Um, but it was the impact of it, right? Like, mm -hmm. for some reason, I always thought, the stuff that I was doing, and it was not clinical translational work also, right? So it was not something that you would see immediate uh, immediate replies for, right? Mm -hmm. You would see the kind of work that I was doing, you would see maybe a return or a clinical development of it in like 10, 15, 20 years. So yeah. there's no immediate uh, translation of this work. So that was one reason. Talk about delayed gratification there, right? Exactly, right. <laughs> and then the second thing, um, I will say this, that the, 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 some of the people who I saw pursuing at that time, right? Not, at, not right now because I've come away. But some of the people who I saw pursuing the assistant professor life or the professor life, I was like, do I really want to have that life, right? Like mm -hmm. it was, it was not, like I wasn't, Fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know, right? The the I don't know how it goes, but um, the people who I saw around my circle pursuing an academic life weren't weren't inspiring me to do so either, mm -hmm. right? And so mm -hmm. then I was like, okay, if that's the case, then what else is out there? And I that was third year, uh, and more importantly, I think it was more like, oh my god, I'm spending fifteen, sixteen hours a day in the lab. I need something else to do. So I enrolled myself right. in some random courses, which back then was more of an outlet. Mm -hmm. Now when I tell people to do the same thing, I ask them to actively do this because five years is an average, maybe six years is an average PhD time, right? In Europe, mm -hmm. it's a little lesser. In um, non-STEM subjects, it's a little longer. Mm -hmm. But you're spending this time enrolled to a university, and I came to that, like, suddenly some random music in my head went on. It's like, <laughs> dude, you didn't take a single course outside of your syllabus, and you're in one of the best universities in the world. And mm -hmm, it's been mm -hmm. paid for. Like, what? <laughs> Other than laziness, how can you justify this when you're done with this? And today, mm -hmm. outside of an university system, I can say, like, any of us who are not enrolled to a university have to pay massive amount of money to take a course from a university like Cornell or anywhere, right? So, of course. 
So I know myself in history of rock music, right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and and entrepreneurship 101, right? Okay. And both those courses I audited and and I was like, wow, this is this is pretty interesting and I met a whole bunch of new people. And then from that I started realizing, oh, just like undergrad, grad school also has clubs that you could join. Mm-hmm. Right and has has societies that you could join, and so I started joining the graduate society, joined the consulting club, joined the finance club, and again, all of this is to just to kind of spend a little time away from lab, just to keep mm-hmm. my sanity. Not necessarily. Yeah, I have a question. No, I I didn't do enough of that. Although eventually, got again, you know, when I was towards the, f- the final years of my PhD, I started also trying to to widen my horizons a little bit and and finding resources and and you know career counseling things like that um but how did you uh manage the time to to you know to be implicated in, in these different things and how was that perceived maybe around you in the lab because uh, often one of the obstacles we have to uh, as a phd student to do these things is this is going to be perceived as me disinvesting uh, from from my research and it's going to disappoint you know my supervisor and maybe my peers can you talk a little bit about that yeah so yeah both of them are <laughs> super interesting questions right so number one of, of how do i manage the time um i i uh and by the way Today, I would say I'm trying to practice what I preach, but you mm-hmm. will see me preaching a lot about imposter syndrome and mm-hmm. kind of not not feeling insecure about how much you have achieved these days, right? Totally different yeah. mentality <laughs> 12 years back okay? or, or, or 10 years back. Um, back then, I was like, oh my God, I I have 16 hours of lab work. I have seven hours left. Um, but I cannot be sane by just the 16 hours of lab work. I will push in two more year, two more hours of additional okay. stuff, right? Um, and you this is not the, this is not new the rope to, a little bit. Yeah, this is not <laughs> new to grad school. I was I was I, I spread myself too thin in undergrad as well. Mm-hmm. And people said like, what impacted was my sleep rather than anything else, right? Mm-hmm. So like. I did my work that I had to do in undergrad, but then I did a whole bunch of other extracurricular work. And then I was like, oh my God, I have to sleep. And I slept for three, four hours, right? So mm-hmm. time management back then was more like how much, uh, how worse I can treat myself <laughs> <laughs> to, to get the stuff. That, uh, it, there was no time management. I, I'll be very honest, right? There was no time management. If I would have managed my time better, I think um, I could have done a lot of other things that and and a lot of other things better. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I will say here, though, is um, thankfully and fortunately, I met my wife during my PhD mm-hmm. here um, in 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 Cornell, Ithaca, and that was a big kind of support system, right? Because like there were certain things you're not spending time like you. I found her. We were interested in each other. We dated, and then done like check mark on that so there was no more <laughs> spending time on finding another person and in relationships mm-hmm. so i think that was um another kind of like all right i can now focus on work and i like i can now focus on extracurriculars it, it kind of grounded you in a way it did gra- exactly and to be honest for all the people who love ithaca i mean i like i like ithaca for what it is but it's uh it's the middle of nowhere right <laughs> So the, you have to, like, for someone like me who's super extracurricular and extroverted, I had to involve myself in a bunch of things. So it was, again, mm-hmm. more of a necessity than a hobby for me, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the time management question. And then the question of um, how was it re- perceived? I, I, I don't think my um, advisor knew that I was part of the consulting club, finance club, and the graduate society. Mm-hmm. Well, the, clearly by the by the way you you did it, which was just to put more waking hours in your day. I think you you circumvented that that situation. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so coming back to the question of um, who, how did people perceive it? 
So let's break it in chunks, right? My boss was okay as long as work was done. And he, I mean, the flexibility nowadays, many companies give infinite days of vacation. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that. Right. Okay. And infinite days of vacation, to be honest, I don't, I mean, I don't know what it basically puts pressure on you. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Because it seems like you can take any day, any time off, but it's not, it's exactly the opposite. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's well, if you're if you're a perfectionist, you're in trouble because right. you'll always think, okay, I didn't do enough. I don't I don't get to, to take my vacation now. <laughs> yes, and so for for us, um, my my schedule and, and during PhD was I would I would probably roll into lab at nine thirty ish, ten ish, work for until afternoon, then take a break, leave, go do other stuff. Uh, in between, if I took classes or something that's separate. Then maybe come back again after dinner, which was usually around like eight eight thirty, and or maybe later nine, and then work the night shift until like whatever one thirty two. Okay, it didn't matter so much. And so, um, my advisor didn't know what was like the other stuff didn't take time, right? Mm-hmm. So as long as work was getting done, he was fine. And he was an assistant professor, so he was of course under the tenure gun, which is why the the work. Uh, the 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 intensity of the work was high. Um, however, there was an internship that I did in tech transfer office at Cornell, for which I had to kind of like actually have a discussion with him and say like, "Hey, this is not going to take time away from research," um, and and I had to convince him for that. Right. Okay. So so if you are asking whether. Um, advisors would be usually easily convinced. Absolutely not. I mean, no. <laughs> my advisor is not a representation of it. In general, I don't think people understand unless they are sat down, maybe by their like the graduate committee or something, and made explain to them that hey, this is important for the career development and the overall development of a student. People don't understand these things. Like they're like mm-hmm. you're wasting time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um so no i i think i think i i didn't experience anything special it was not as if that my advisor was like yes green light to everything go do whatever you want that was not the mm-hmm. case some of it he just didn't know because i was doing in the side and some of it i just had to convince him right mm-hmm. now here are things that i am telling you that i did there were things where i wanted to do and i couldn't right okay so it was kind of a negotiation, like, all right, I couldn't do that, so let me do this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very good. It does answer my question. I think it represents the reality for a lot of people. Again, like you said, the pressure that the the, the supervisor is on will transfer to the, to the students. Uh, and, and uh, of course, if you're choosing your PhD, depending on how, how well you deal with pressure and stress, maybe this could inform where, you know, what lab... Uh, what supervisor you choose choose someone who's maybe no longer under the gun under the gun of the the tenure uh the tenure track uh, you know they they're already tenured that could be that it's could be a one it's a one. balance it's a it's i mean if you're if you are under if you are working with an assistant professorship who's going for tenure the chances that you're going to get a larger more than average number of papers is very high mm-hmm. because the, the he is up on the gun for publishing. And so mm-hmm. if you're one of his first few grad students, you're pretty much setting up the lab with him and part of all the projects that he has just started. Because he mm-hmm. hasn't diverged, you know, different projects yet. So mm-hmm. pretty much m- almost uh, most of our grad students that were part of that, sir, and I was one of them, the the group of six or so that, that was part of his lab initially each of us came out of PhD with like seven papers. Not all of them wow, first author, of huge. course, but like just even seven is a is a number that that people are like, huh, seven papers. Not that I'm like I need those seven papers anymore, but now if I look back at it, I'm like, well, those were really tough days. But yeah, I mean, it it's productive. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the the con of working with a younger professor is he is still making his own network. So he may not know that many people for you to know as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas an established professor who has been there for a while, 
knows pretty much everybody in the field, kind of mm-hmm. figure out, all right, go do this with this guy. Or, hey, mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about a postdoc. I'll make a phone call and you can go somewhere else, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Also, also be less stressed about being scooped uh, or, 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 you know, which can be very, very, very stressful for a very young professor. Yes, agreed. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> the projects <laughs> that we worked on had two other labs working on them, one of them in Germany, the other in Korea. We were mm-hmm. in New York. And so one, <laughs> one of the things that we said in our lab um, was the competition never sleeps because <laughs> of where they were. And it's yeah, just yeah, yeah. like you, I'm laughing at it now, but back then it was one of those things like, yeah, you have to like, you know, keep on working. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Just because of, of, of uh, the time zone. Geography. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Now, Parag, uh, it's, it's very interesting that you, you kind of invested in this, let's say networking. It, it wasn't probably, you probably didn't per- perceive it as that. You were trying new things, uh, learn, learning new subjects mm-hmm. and, and, well, and, and getting in, involved in groups that worked into in things that interested you. Uh, but I think we can talk about networking and how this translates to some of the things you do today a little bit later. Now, I, I just wanted to finish this part about your your trajectory and, and you know, how you came to, to work in pharma with this, the, the maybe the moment where you felt, because you already mentioned it, you saw people around you following the academic path and you didn't you didn't see yourself it didn't resonate with you and maybe it even you even said okay no this is really i wouldn't thrive in this environment can you maybe talk a little bit about when you actually said okay i need to start looking for what's coming next and it's not in academia and how yeah, you how, you know what were the key maybe strategies that you that you used to you know, start meeting people, something that led to, let's say, your first position outside of academia? Yeah. Um, So this is a layered question, right? So first thing that I would say is around that third year was the time of that, you call it revelation, turning point, whatever it was, Mm -hmm. was the point where kind of a voice in my mind said, Prague, academia probably isn't for you. And Mm -hmm. it came with all the banks of um, imposter syndrome, of like uh, grief that, oh my God, I've I've given five plus three, eight years with two mm. more years to go into studying a subject that I'm now going to be planning to leave and not really do much about it, right? Um, and it didn't help that pretty much 99% of my friend circle, of my uh, family knew if there was one thing that they knew was the academic track, right? Of course. And mm-hmm. and and maybe academic track isn't the right word, research track or R&D track, right? So even if they were outside of quote-unquote academia, they were doing R&D in like other places. So that, that was the kind of starting point of like, all right, I know I want to not do research, but now what do I do? And this mm-hmm. is the way I would break it down for those who are currently in their PhD programs or postdoc is first come to the realization of, is it a binary yes or no? Because it is a binary. Um, mm-hmm. People start thinking, oh, no, maybe let's do a postdoc. And then I will realize, do it only f- if you are forced to do it. And and international students have that issue often because you want to go into a, you know, a postdoc because otherwise mm-hmm. you lose immigration status. But that question is binary. Do I want to continue this or not? And mm-hmm. once that question is answered, even because a lot of people will tell me, well, maybe the moment you said maybe the answer is actually no, because <laughs> you will know if you want. I mean, it's it's not that tough. Right. So once you yeah. make that decision um, or it comes to you that maybe this is not what I want to do then starts the whole question that you're asking of how do I find out what is it that I wanted to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the first thing that I did was figure, realize that my immediate network, my friends are amazing, but they didn't know anything about what I wanted to do outside of PhD. Yeah. And so that was kind of the reason why I realized, oh my God, I'm so 
glad I joined these societies. Because yeah. suddenly I was with people who were from biomedical engineering or mechanical engineering. And somehow people who are in the engineering PhD track, I don't know why, uh, they just know more <laughs> about mm. stuff outside of science. Right. It's more of an applied domain, exactly. right? So I yeah. guess that 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 would be the reason they they probably have already done some internships. Exactly. Uh, they, right. So they're yeah they're more attuned to that. Whereas where you and I come from, it's more uh, basic research, you know, just to to accumulate knowledge and exactly and, you know, that, right? Mm -hmm. So so I think so I was lucky in that sense that I met a few people who kind of sat me down and said, hey. You are extroverted, you like working with people, you like smart problems. Maybe consulting is something you should look at. Mm -hmm. This happened to me. Somebody said, like a few few people said, Prague, based on what your personality is, consulting seems to be a good line of thought, right? Mm -hmm. Did you hear what Parag just said? Widening his circle of contacts during graduate school gave him access to an also wider hive mind to bounce ideas with and get advice from. I've said it before, but staying cooped up in your lab or your department is a loss of opportunity of fully taking advantage of the possibilities and resources graduate school and university offer. Parag then drilled down on his question a little more. Um... And then I had heard about consulting companies while in India as well. I just didn't know what they do. Um, but I had heard that they were like really smart places to get into. And you, if you get into them, people kind of start thinking of you as like a smart person, which is, of course, <laughs> always one of the things that you want to, you know. Um, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying it happens. <laughs> it's a human thing. Yeah. Um, so that kind of started me getting more interested in, in consulting as a career. I will say there was a, and it still is, but I don't think it's monitored well, but I think somebody has done a good job in taking that website and kind of archiving it. The website's called phdcareerguide.com. Okay. Um, it, I think it was done by, I'm, I, I will not actually try to name or guess the <laughs> name because I forget, but it was done by a postdoc, I think at Rutgers. Okay. And what it did, this guy basically probably went through the same uh, same discussions that as we were going through, or you mm -hmm. know, same thought processes, and he put a whole bunch of resources in a very very well organized way in one website. And what it means is that you click on careers and it shows IP, consulting, finance, tech transfer, okay. communications, and you click on them. And each of them opens up on a page and it tells you what that job is, what is the average salary, and what are the companies that hire for that job, right? So suddenly you have an encyclopedia where I was like, whoa, seriously, I can do all of these things? <laughs> and somehow this is interesting now when I look back, back at, the, at time, 2011, I wasn't interested in finance. So I really mm -hmm. didn't even click on that tab. All I clicked on was consulting, entrepreneurship, SciComm. So science, I was interested in science communication. And I figured out, okay, these are the companies that need that, that go through that. And then over one weekend, and he had listed about, I don't know, 150 consulting companies. So he pretty oh, much, wow. okay. so like alphabetically, I don't think he listed it. I think he just grabbed somebody else's list. Because you have mm -hmm. these encyclopedias, right, of... of and over a weekend, I had a little small notebook. I went through each of those websites to see who hires PhDs. Okay. And okay, so, okay. like, I had a net notebook of, like, all right, this one, this one. So now I have a list of 17 companies out of the 150 that hire PhDs, right? Mm -hmm. And then I started realizing, okay, I started talking to people and say, okay, which companies are good and bad? And that's when I realized McKinsey, BCG, Bain are, like, the top three then there are others, but I did that. And mm -hmm. again, if I have to give actionable advice, there, I mean, the amount of time you spend on something is directly proportional to the impact of it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, one can say, one can talk about luck, fate, uh, un, you know, unexpected mm -hmm. uh, outliers. Serendipity. 
But things like this, this is research. This is what we are taught to do for five years. And yeah. we are taught to research <laughs> other stuff for publications. Unfortunately, we don't do enough, quote unquote, research for our own careers, <laughs> which is which is just not the good idea. Like we know how research can be done. We know, fine, let's get the information first, then let's filter it down to a few things. And then finally, we know the thought process. We just don't yeah. apply it for career. Um, and I'm not yeah, it's saying like, it's as if. It's as if we're it's it's we're it's a country that we don't know the language. So we see we see uh, you know billboards or uh, or plates that are probably indicating the subway, but yeah. it's written in Cyrillic, yeah. and we we just don't you know we just we we know how to use the subway, but just because we're in a context that's foreign, that's maybe uh, you know. Uh, um, Fear inducing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, I, I'll take your I'll take your uh, analogy and drive it a little more. Right. If you go to Boston, mm -hmm. I I love I love Boston as a city just because of this reason. If you go to Boston because it's a it's a like a biotech Silicon Valley, right? Mm -hmm. Um. If you go to the subway of Boston, the ads within this Boston subway are all biotech companies. Right now, now when you're taking the subway in Boston, you're looking at all these ads. If you're somebody who's doing a PhD and doesn't know these biotech companies, I mean, right now, if you're listening to this and you're in Boston, just go through the ads and find out what these companies do. Because, because you know, you, you, you pass ads holdings, just like you said, without knowing what they are or caring about it. Mm -hmm. Boston is one city where because I'm in biotech or in, in pharma, every ad I see, I'm like, oh, wow, they have an ad here. Oh, they have an ad. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting, right? And when, yeah. if I was if I were to somehow transpose myself into like third year of PhD, I wouldn't know the name of many of these companies. Mm -hmm, and I course. would just walk beside them without knowing what they are. And that's mm. that's like the same thing. It's, it's if you... Just you. This is happening beside you in the, your surrounding. Find out what it is, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, anyway, it's a good analogy. It's a good analogy. <laughs> that's the so that's the story of um, me realizing that consulting could have been a, a would would be a good thing, mm -hmm. and then I just joined. I, mean, I had already joined the consulting club. I just took a leadership position there, okay. and I started organizing consulting meetings, like people coming together and and cracking or trying to solve a case interview question. Okay, cool. And that's when I realized, oh, okay, there are these case interview competitions that happen. Oh, wow. So we formed a team among a few people, and we went to different universities. We won a couple of competitions, and that pretty much solidified. Because somebody had told me that, hey, you should go to these competitions, because if you don't like this, you won't like the job. And I loved okay. that process. Like, I loved working in a team making a deck, presenting it to a group of people. Mm -hmm. And at that time, of course, it was like just interesting puzzles to solve, right? Yeah. The moment something that you like becomes a job, it's a little different. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, but I love that process. The same guy had actually told me that like any job, if you don't like the interview process, chances are you won't like the job. And this okay. is something that I... I continue to kind of feel through all of the career progressions that I've made that like, if you don't really enjoy the process and the people you're meeting, then you're not going to like the people that you can work with. Mm -hmm. Because they represent the culture. They represent the culture of whoever of you the are. industry and of the company mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and consulting any networking event. I went to my first question and my only question was, what is it that you like about the job? Because if you ask anybody, if you ask me, the job is taxing. The job is stressful. It will take a chunk of your life when you're doing it. Um, mm -hmm. Depending on companies, it'll the hours will change. Depending on who you're working with, the interesting part of it will change. But it will be stressful. Um, mm -hmm. And and when people told me that, then I was like, all right, if it is so stressful, why are these people? Why are these smart people doing this? And so that was my only question every time I asked in a networking event, like, why do, do you like consulting? And pretty much 100% of the answers were people. Everybody okay. said 
they are doing consulting because of the people they work with. Mm-hmm. And that was enough for me. Like for me, as again, as an extrovert, I was like, oh, yeah, I want to know more people <laughs> yeah. and more interesting it's funny. people. I, I went when I was uh, at, at McGill. I went to a presentation by Kin- by McKinsey, and the guy who was presenting, it, it's it, you know, it sounded very interesting. But then he mentioned uh, that uh, I think I think his weeks were eighty hour weeks. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh, you know, to me, it showed even on his face that he, that you know it, that he was tired or you know or spent like like you were saying. But if you're passionate about it, and if you know if the 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 pluses for you uh, are are more important than the, the the drawbacks for sure. Dive in. Yeah. Now, yeah. now you you had two other two other like pivots, let's say. Yeah. Uh, and this this thing of, of pivoting um, is always a moment. There's always a moment of um, maybe f- not fragility is maybe not the word that I'm looking for, but you are going into this new swimming pool where you don't really know the rules yeah. yet uh you you might have imposter syndrome once you get the position um but what would you say were your go-to strategies to uh, one one you already said research 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 and and try to know you know even though you have you're not in the industry know as as much as possible as you can before going in and even before the interview process right but how did you prepare for for an interview? You already mentioned talking with people, so informational interviews for sure must be one of your go-to yeah. strategies. But um, what would you say for people who are, you know, straight out of the PhD? What's the maybe three things they should invest in in preparing for this? Because it's going to happen multiple times in your life, yep. changing yep. changing jobs, right? Yep. So, so <clears throat> it's interesting. Um, I'll I'll start from a higher level and, and go deeper down into the question, right? The one thing that I've always realized now on hindsight is that I'm lucky to, to have, a little bit lucky to have an extra extroverted personality mm-hmm. because that makes things easier for me to talk to people, for sure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty much my first point. Talking to people, as many people as you can, is pretty much the only way uh, opportunities that don't show up on job pages will open up to you. That's yeah. like, you can call it networking, you can call it uh, whatever, but it comes down to building relationships by talking to people. Mm-hmm. And it does not mean you go to a, of course, with COVID now, that's not the case anymore, but for sure. those who remember, it does not mean you go to a cocktail networking session and just exchange business cards. It means once you have exchanged those business cards during Thanksgiving or during the holiday season, sending them a note, mm-hmm. sending them like, hey, you know, Happy New Year or whatever. Keeping that network going, finding an article that you think person XYZ might be interested in and sending it to them. You are mm-hmm. not doing this to get a job like that's I might be like skipping a few steps here but people say oh so I should make relationships so that I can ask them for a job absolutely no like it'll never work because those relationships will never work so let me take a step back part one talk to people Um, part two and in fact this could be number one know what you like and what you don't like one of the things mm-hmm. that I learned a lot from my consulting interviews was that I sat down. McKinsey has a great resource of how you should prepare for their interviews. I would suggest everybody, even those who are not per, like preparing for consulting interviews, should do that. Mm-hmm. Why? Okay. Because they tell you how to break down yourself and your personality, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I actually spent a couple of days breaking down these are the things that i did why did i do them blah 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 and you can call it introspection you can call it career prep interview prep but i i go back to that notebook i have that notebook for 12 well 10 years now eight Mm -hmm. years now where i have these like little strategy trees of like i did this most likely because of this and this Mm -hmm. shows this and Mm -hmm. this goes back to like 
time of my PhD of different skill sets. So number one, talking to people. Number one, introspect. Number two, introspecting. Mm-hmm. And then number three is flexibility. I can I can be even more cliche and say being easy on yourself. This is not easy for most of us. I can tell you for a fact that there were there have been and there is still times when I'm like, oh, why can't I do this? I'm a PhD, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. I can stay up for 18 hours straight or 48 hours straight and, you know, finish this job. Why do I bring that in a job search environment? There are, there are two things that people will face, and I have faced this multiple times, where you will think this is the job that you want and you will not get it. If you tell yourself at that point that, oh, my God, I am the person at fault here, that's you being hard on yourself. Mm-hmm. And my first job search in consulting taught me that. My third, my last job search that ultimately led to me joining Novartis taught me that or reminded me that is that these things are not about my abilities. These things are about a mutual fit. Mm-hmm. And it does not at all mean that I'm not capable to do something. It just means at that time, that company didn't want somebody with my skill set. Mm-hmm. And that's good enough for me to just, as long as I tell myself that. And th- these are, <laughs> these are um, things that we just keep telling ourselves and say, make, you know, make it look good. But that's mm-hmm. not what it is. It's, it's really something that we should be aware of because... I have done this myself. I know other people have done it where they get a rejection, then they start questioning themselves and then they never apply again. Mm-hmm. And one rejection means actually absolutely nothing. Two doesn't mean anything. Just as a fact, between my second my last job and the one where I was in Novartis, mm-hmm. um I applied 10 times and probably had eight rejections. Right, that's a 20% success rate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it's it's a great point you make, and uh, you know, there's many things that this elicits for me. We're in the middle of COVID. People are often alone at home. They can have a ne- you know negative self thought. Can be uh, you know uh, yeah really uh, having a bad impact on on their day to day mental health. And taking it personally when you receive uh, when you have a rejection is just going to worsen things. Right. One of the things that recently in an interview that, I, that I've just recorded, the person actually said, use the rejection as a positive. So, and what they meant was, if you can, and especially if you've gone to, through an interview process and then the answer was no, get back in touch, take note of the name of the person interviewing you, get back in touch with them, and even though they might not even answer, but ask them, how could I, how could I improve on, on what I did? What were the 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 main factors that meant that the other candidate got the job and make a plus out of a minus. Exactly, exactly right. I think asking for feedback is one of the biggest things or biggest mistakes that most people don't do. And I didn't mm-hmm. do it until the first, you know, until the second set of jobs that I applied, right? Like I didn't mm-hmm. learn this the first time around. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, well, what is the difference between this interview that I didn't get and this interview that I didn't get? I didn't learn anything from this. <laughs> like, like I have to learn something. And mm-hmm. you're no, you're you're spot on 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 that, right? So, going back to your original question, if there were three things that I would ask people to do, I would say talk to as many people as you can who are different from what you are doing. If you are a mm-hmm. physics PhD, go talk to somebody who's doing humanities PhDs, right? Like, find ways, find, and people would mostly say, well, I don't have a network. Um, David Mendes, Prague Mahanti are creating those networks for you. Yep. We are actively and daily, uh, and that's how we met, uh, trying to create networks of like-minded, uh, although not all from the same domain, but like-minded people on LinkedIn. Yeah, and that was actually, I, I, was, I, had that, I had a segue, which because you were telling people should try to meet people, people with different backgrounds. And I was totally se- going to segue onto that because one of the things we wanted to, I wanted to talk is, well, how can people today from their home network in, in an environment that's professional 
uh, and that's uh, yeah that that we're yeah. we're we're talking about careers and talking about uh, jobs is is just natural. And uh, you have uh, with with a group of people created uh, and I mentioned I mentioned it in the intro a fairly large group uh, on LinkedIn. Can you talk a little bit about that? And we're reaching the end of the interview, but I think we can finish on that on how today with COVID locked down maybe at home you can still work to our, towards a you know a larger network and which eventually although now not directly like you mentioned also you you're not going to talk to someone and they'll give you a job but the amount of conversations you have on a platform like this may eventually bring up you know make make bring a contact with someone else who might think of you and say oh you know i had a chat with this bloke <laughs> from from uh, montreal who would would actually and then and then things can happen yeah so um just to summarize for the so meet people be flexible and the second one was um i have to go back and and listen to the recording <laughs> but almost like basically go go meet people try to find out what you have done and, and the, how the introspection, yeah. introspection and then uh, flexibility, right? All of these three things when you double click has other stuff in it. Mm -hmm. The first one, meet new people, as you said, is LinkedIn. That was my first thing to learn in PhD. One of my colleagues said, hey, have you tried the premium membership of LinkedIn, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I took a premium membership while in PhD, not knowing okay. how much it would help. Through LinkedIn, I got my first job. I oh, applied okay. through LinkedIn, sent my resume. The job came up on LinkedIn, sent my resume through LinkedIn. Somebody messaged me back on LinkedIn messaging, set up an interview, one interview for 90 minutes or so. Okay. And I got, and then the final interview, and I got the job. Okay, this is not amazing. the job I, that I, I didn't know this story. <laughs> yeah. So. So, and this is 2013 or 12. Um, eight years have passed since then, and LinkedIn has only become more powerful. So mm -hmm. anybody who tells me, no, LinkedIn doesn't work, they haven't used it enough. They haven't mm -hmm. used it properly. And if people ask, we spend money on random things. LinkedIn is an investment. So if mm -hmm. somebody's asking, how do you meet people? You meet people through LinkedIn. Um Same story now, if you look at it, because of the same situation where I was one of the few who had gotten a consulting job, random people would then message me or email me and say, hey, can I talk to you? Because mm -hmm. even if it was like there were a lot of people who were doing consulting after PhD, but whatever the reason was within my friend circle, not many. And so okay. then their friends would call me up. And that's when I started realizing enough people need um need support, need more people mm -hmm. to talk to. So that's when we started thinking, or rather, I, I mean, I had a blog that didn't really, I didn't really invest time in it, which I called mm -hmm. academic inertia. And <laughs> which was like, you know, you can keep doing what you want, or you can stop. But unless there's an external poor force, you're not changing what you're doing. And that's, that's mm -hmm. inertia. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of led me to meet a couple of people in New York who had an alumni club um, okay. from an Indian university. And so I had my ideas. So I kind of started collaborating with them and became a co-founder of this Facebook group that was focused on Indian students mm -hmm. after PhD. Uh, but it was purely Facebook. And that's when I started the LinkedIn group saying, okay, okay. We don't, I think the LinkedIn group is going to be more important. Also, uh, that group was mostly Indian students. And I wanted to have, and STEM students mostly. And my okay. plan or Very my focused. thought was always go bigger, go broader. And so the LinkedIn group started that way. And that was back in 2016. So 2016, I'm, I'm doing consulting. Then I moved to equity research, which is another high intensity, high demanding job. So I don't get to spend too much time on the, on the LinkedIn front. But once after I came to Novartis, which is of course also high intensity, high demanding, but I mm -hmm. could now find a rhythm and I knew how much time I could spend on anything. So end of last year, I started realizing, you know what, time is now good to kind of invest time in this. And so that's when PhD Career Networking Group on LinkedIn became kind of like one of the things that I was spending time on. Okay. Anytime, like outside of work hours, 
I would kind of like, all right, who do I need to know? By this time, remember these four years, I have met a bunch of people who are doing things. So like mm-hmm. Roshni Rao, somebody I would mention, she's doing amazing things in John Hop- Johns Hopkins. I knew that she's there. Not yeah, that we yeah. started talking, but I knew she exists. Same thing <laughs> with Vanya, right? Vey has been doing an enormous amount of great stuff with Free the PhD. And I was like, I knew Vanya exists, right? So mm. there, was, there were these little thought leaders who were all doing their own little amazing things. And I was like, okay, first step, how can I get a bunch of these thought leaders into this group so that people actually get, get advice that is from people who have been there, done that? Because the other part of making a group like this is that if you get a bunch of people who are all looking for jobs, how can they really help you, right? Yeah, so yeah. You first, there's no value added. Yeah. There's no value added. So you start with people who actually have gotten the jobs, and then you can start getting people who are looking for mentorship, right? So you get the mentors mm-hmm. first, and then so that was kind of a little bit of strategy uh, but earlier in the year. And then it was kind of just trying to create regular content and creating mm-hmm. content. You're creating content, which is kind of robust, original, and you've been doing that. So I, I found out about you through, I think, Twitter. Somebody mentioned, and I was like, yay, you know. Probably Twitter, I, yes. <laughs> we, somehow through the same situations, I found Vera. Um, mm-hmm. And Vera's doing awesome stuff too, right? And so yeah. suddenly... This is this is an actual example where you start finding people through LinkedIn and through Twitter and connect the dots and say, mm-hmm. hey, maybe this person is good for you to talk to. That's something I will take a little bit of credit is I'm is I'm good at. I'm good at connecting dots when dots are people. Right? I'm good mm-hmm. at connecting people. If two people I think are 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 supposed are should be meeting each other, then I'm like, hey, I think David, you should talk to Anupam mm-hmm. or, you know, David, you should talk to Roshni or somebody. Right? Yeah, so, th- and I confirm to the listeners that this this has happened. I've had <laughs> messages saying, hey, look at what this person posted. You might want to talk to them. <laughs> but so this this all makes me think of this, this um, you know, the saying that it takes a village to, to, um, to uh, bring up a child. And it, what it makes me think, there's kind of a parallel with uh, with us who are and, and with people who are looking for jobs. It takes a community to to uh, make you grow into a, a better candidate and to lead you to your next position. It does. What would you s- no, I think, I think the, the, the other thing that most people make a mistake of is that if you are getting unidimensional advice, then it's unidimensional and it's binary. Either that person is right or wrong. Mm-hmm. If you're getting an, <laughs> an advice from a community, then people with different experiences and different, you know, I can tell people now about my experience in consulting and finance and how both of them helped me in my Novartis positions, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody says, oh, consulting jobs don't lead to any interesting things. I, am, I can contest that. The same thing is if I say, well, you know, consulting and finance can only lead to Novartis-like jobs. And then you go talk to Nick Edwards who has done like, you know, consulting entrepreneurship and then he has hired a strategy position at, at another company. No, it's different. So career paths, as much as people want to templatize it, as much as people want to kind of say, like, how can I get that job? These are not formulas and therefore you need more than one people to, to, to share their experience. That is why mm-hmm. stuff that you are doing, right? Like you have... 76 episodes 75 episodes now these are this this is a plethora of information that people not shouldn't be thinking oh person xyz said this and therefore they should do that no you should be thinking person x said this and person y said this and person z said this mm-hmm. together this means i should that's the concept of the community yeah. that i think like it cannot be yeah it- and and then the, the prism of your because you talked about introspection, you you get two or three or three or four pieces of input, and the prism of your values, of your preferences, of your personality will even then transmute that into okay, yes, it makes sense to me, or even you'll have a fourth idea or a fifth idea. Oh, interesting that they yeah. say that this it made me think of this new thing that no one has, uh, has said before. Yeah. 
You've seen this in our group, right? There has been discussions that are so amazing. And it doesn't just have to be in the group. If I give a very easy example, again on LinkedIn, uh, you are, you're probably familiar with the discussion that's happening today. And wh- whoever is listening to this this uh, podcast at a later time, will this will not be today for them. But mm-hmm. Gertrude's post. Yes. Right? That's an amazing post. So just for the listeners, there's another content creator here, Gertrude Nontera on LinkedIn. And I know her previously through LinkedIn. And she posted, Mm -hmm. hey, who are the other LinkedIn creators? And somebody else tagged me and said, Prague is one of the people. (laughs) I came in and tagged, you know, another bunch of people. David got tagged by four or five different people. Yeah. (laughs) And suddenly, Gatrude's post has 99 likes and 99 comments. And there are, it is in that post alone is an encyclopedia of LinkedIn content creators. Suddenly, Mm. like, and so it's, it did not happen because of one person and it cannot happen because of one person. It's so funny because someone who was on the show uh, in, the, in season one uh, also was tagged and appeared and was like, oh, he's commenting on Gertrude's post and, and he's saying, oh, we should start a Discord channel. For, and it's true. The potential that you have in the, on this platform is, is pretty huge. It's pretty huge. No, I'm, I'm, thank you for being part of it, David. I cannot say this enough to all the people who are part of the community that earlier in 2020 knowing that there was a pandemic i was a little kind of like oh my god as an extrovert i was going insane and this community kind of like was whoa this is another way to meet people and then suddenly 5000 people joined <laughs> yeah yeah i'm like again by at the date of this episode uh, just a couple of weeks ago the the there was a, they crossed so the the group crossed the, the mark of 5000 members which is yes. huge Yes, yes, yes. And just for the listeners, David um, uh, David also has, David and I have collaborated to create a similar group for French-speaking uh, audiences that mm-hmm. reached 100 members within the last three months, right? Yeah, yep. so, it's true. So there <laughs> is just, another group that's did. happening for those who speak French. David has a group yep. where I am part of and the other members of the PhD Career Networking Group are part of. That has 100 that people already. So that's growing too. So listeners will know that this is a bilingual podcast. Each week we switch from French to English and so on. And uh, I, I approached Prague. I said, Prague, I love the the, the way this group uh, works. The, the And I think it would be great to make a group uh, in French and with the offers and and uh, and um, discussions that would be in French and it's growing well and I'm I'm super happy that I approached you about that. I remember at first you were a bit like you know well actually said okay we should meet and talk you probably you didn't know me that well right <laughs> and now I, I'm I'm really really happy I did it and again I, I really hope that eventually I'll uh, reach the same number as as the the father or the mother group. <laughs> No, I think I think um, I think there's a lot of value in uh, in kind of creating such many groups. Uh, the the only discussion that I wanted to have with you because the moment you had reached out to us, I was like, in my mind, I can I can share this now. In my mind, was like, well, mm-hmm. David is probably the best person to handle something like that, right? And the only thing that I wanted to understand was that I knew you were in Canada. I was like, you're starting a French group. Are you wanting to go back to France or, or, or not back to France, but are you wanting to go to France um, or something like that? So if if somebody comes in with like another such example of like, hey, let's do a Spanish version of this, right? Mm-hmm. Now they need to have the, the, the impact that you have already had. Like I consider you as a thought leader in the space. I don't know enough Spanish thought leaders in the space, right? So, like, <laughs> yeah. who are those people? And so that's the, the, the kind of the thought process. But I'm so glad mm. to have collaborated with you on that. And, and, and I'm glad that we are talking today, therefore. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. No, it's true. Parag, yeah, sadly, we, we've uh, we've reached the end of the interview. I think we covered a, a lot of uh, really great points. I really appreciate the fact that you, uh, you have done different pivots af- even after the PhD. And I think that makes it, that your input really interesting because you've you've tuned you know this it's a it's kind of a process that you've gone through 
multiple times and you have you know you've you've been tuning it each time you've been improving the way the, like you said uh, at the beginning you didn't ask for feedback and now it's something that's part of it and i think if if there's one thing that i apart from all the advice that you shared and i'll share the links that you mentioned in the show notes one of the things is this is a process you get better at it as you go when you get a no when you get a rejection it's part of the process it's a, a step towards the yes yeah. and it's a it's an opportunity to improve and to get better and to get better and to eventually uh, have that meeting with that group that fits your values you are a good fit with them and they'll say yes that is exactly right thank you david that's i mean i could have summarized it better <laughs> So thank you uh, thanks a lot. I know you're you're on your Thanksgiving vacation. You took time for you know for this conversation which was I'm very thankful for. So uh have keep having uh, having uh, fun with family and friends and uh and uh yeah I, again thanks a lot for having been on Papa Pete. Thank you David. It was a pleasure and keep doing the great work that you are doing. Awesome. I'll keep trying. <laughs> and those who are listening PhD Career Networking Group Yes, I'll also drop the link, of course, on uh, in the in the show notes. Thank you, thank you, Brian. What a great conversation this was! I hope you took notes. As an extra note, the Grad Grid now has over seventy five hundred members on LinkedIn and is still growing and going strong. Come visit and chat with some great members of the PhD tribe, and remember to reach out to Parag Mahanti on Twitter if you want to contribute to the COVID effort in India. Have a great week. Thanks for listening and for sharing and stay safe. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.